we speak this evening about what might be one of the most poignant ways that we as Christians in today's society and culture can be a testimony to a lost world. The title of the message is Biblical Work Ethic. You know, we live in a society that has, by and large, lost sight of the concept of work ethic. Uh, it's a society of entitlement. It's a society that does indeed thrive on laziness. I was talking to some men the other day and we were talking about uh, the current social media video game culture. And, and we had mentioned that both social media and video games in their proper place are a fine thing. But I uh, was citing an article that I had read not long ago that was saying that video games have become um, so important in the lives of many people that, that their sense of fulfillment is rooted not in their own accomplishments, but in the accomplishments of their digital characters. To the extent where all of everything that they feel uh, that they have accomplished is lived out through a digital life. And as we think about these concepts, what we are understanding in this age, and, and then as we think of entitlement culture and the welfare state and all of these things that, that are, are happening all around us, particularly in this nation at this time, it is a time where work ethic might be in America at an all-time low. And as we consider that, uh, we, of course, lament for our culture. We lament for the lack of character, but the old adage goes that the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. That the darker it is around us, the, the easier it is for us to shine our light. Uh, many of you have heard my, uh, my, my stories of, of uh, I grew up in public school and, and some of my past and various opportunities that I had to let my light so shine before men. And I've told you before that uh, the, the darkest place that I have ever been, even darker than the public school I went to, was my summer working at a McDonald's. And uh, as I think back upon that experience, I think back upon the incredible darkness, the, the, the depravity morally, and, and just how awful the people were there, but... I remember those days as the days where it, it was so easy to be a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. It was as simple as showing up on time, showing up every day I was scheduled, not swearing, doing what I was told to do while I was on the clock, not taking breaks when I shouldn't have, taking breaks when I was told to, and my register was never, never came up short. And that's all it took. And people said, what's different with this guy? Well, it's, I mean, that's as simple as just living life, right? I mean, that's really all it was, is as simple as living life. But what it was, was a simple reflection of when we live a biblical lifestyle, we have an opportunity in the darkness of this world to shine forth the light. And tonight is just one of those very special areas where you, every one of us, can reflect God's Word, clearly and simply, simply by living these principles. We pick up 
following last week. Last week in verses 1 through 5 of 2 Thessalonians 3, recall uh, we considered Paul's imperative request that the church would be praying for himself as well as for other ministers. And that was the focus of our time, that we were focusing on brethren pray for us, right? Please pray for us. Pray that the word of God would go forth with power, Paul asked, and pray that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not the faith. And we recognize that, that though we all need prayer, and certainly ministers are praying for, for you all, that ministers need your prayers as well. And we need your prayers that as we send forth the word of God into this world and as we labor for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you, that you would pray that the word of God would go forth from us with power and that we would be protected from those who would desire to see the gospel quenched, who would desire to see us as ministers of the gospel, um, damaged in testimony or physically for our message. Now this week, this is not another request. Last week we saw the imperative request. This week is indeed a command. And he says in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pretty potent command here. He says, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's just read verses 6 through 12 to lay the foundation for what we're going to be learning this evening. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. And we're going to stop there. We'll pick up next week. And uh, this week, we're going to focus on this idea of biblical work ethic. Next, next week, we're going to talk about biblical separation because we see a command here. And the command is that you would separate yourself from those in the, bo- in the body that are walking disorderly. We will touch on this today. And then next week, we're going to focus in on this and understand biblical separation to a greater Degree, and there will be a little bit of overlap, um, but uh, that that is what the next two weeks will hold for us. So Paul is invoking in verse six his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ to compel these believers unto a behavior that is expected of those that are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. This is a this is a command of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ that this is expected of them as believers. And the command is this, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, there are several points which must be made as we lay a foundation for this command of Paul in the name of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we need to recognize that Paul is speaking about how believers interact among others who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And this is where we'll overlap for just a minute into the idea of biblical separation because we just need to in order to fully understand what's being said here. 
Paul is not speaking of you separating or withdrawing yourself from unbelievers because of their behavior, only of believers because of their behavior. This is made clear by the fact that that Paul uses the description of a brother who walketh disorderly. Did you see that? That ye withdraw yourselves from every brother, the text says, that walketh disorderly. It doesn't mean that the sisters in this room uh, are only commanded to withdraw from your brother, your, your blood brother, if, uh, if he's being lazy. Mom tells him to take out the trash. He doesn't do it. And you say, okay, well, biblical separation time. I'm out of here. That's not what this is talking about. It's not, it's not physical brother. This is speaking of that, that family relationship that is regularly referenced in regard to the church body. That if a person professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, as a person who professes a following in Jesus Christ, you look at them as if they are a part of the, chi- of the family of God, just as you are, and that they are a born-again child of God, and therefore um, there is a spiritual relationship between you where God is your father, God is their father, therefore, in a manner of speaking, they are your brother or sister in Christ. And this um, terminology has been used all the way back, as we can tell here, to the New Testament. That's why Paul regularly invokes this idea. So much so that one of the ways that, that um, the Roman government and Rome tried to discredit Christians is they called them an incestuous cult because they were always marrying their brothers and their sisters. Well, it wasn't that they were marrying their bro- bro- brothers and sisters. It was that they would only marry other believers. They would not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So they were always marrying people that they had before considered their brother or sister in Christ. So we, we have plenty of reason here to understand that Paul is speaking only of your interaction as a born-again believer with other born-again believers. And um, we must take this to be a statement that limits the scope of this command. And our authority as the church to separate from someone from their sin, we need to see it as limited only to those who claim to be followers of Christ. And the definitive teaching for this, I am going to touch on it this evening, and again we'll reference it next week, but the definitive teaching here is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13. through 13. We taught on this a little better than, actually I guess it's getting close to two years ago now that we were near this point in 1 Corinthians. But um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13, through 13, we see this teaching, and it's in the context of a brother who was, if you recall, forn- a fornicator. And he was fornicating with his father's wife, presumably his stepmother. And we see this in verses 9 through 12 of this passage, 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Notice what he says, though. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if a man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do ye not judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. 
So here we see Paul clarify that the lines of biblical separation from people for their sin are intended to be limited toward those who are claiming to be believers. Now, the church has kind of turned this on its head throughout history, hasn't it? The church has kind of, if you're, if you're a believer and you're a part of the church, they've always been willing to kind of overlook your sin, but then judge the outside world for their sin. To look at the outside world as if they're a bunch of lepers in a leper colony for their sin, but then when somebody comes into the church and they're gossiping and they're doing whatever it might be, you just kind of see a blind, uh, turn a blind eye to it. But the Bible says it needs to be the exact opposite. That we can expect the unbelieving world to live like unbelievers because they're unbelievers. And there's no reason why we should expect a bunch of unbelievers to live like believers. And there's no reason why we should separate from unbelievers for being consistent with their very nature. And if we do indeed separate from unbelievers for their sin, well, then we just have to come out of the world entirely, don't we? Because everybody around us is sinning because they're unbelievers and they're dead in their trespasses and sins. So literally, to separate from the unbelieving world or to separate from all sin would be to lock yourself in your house, never have children, and just order pizza every night. I don't know what you'd have to do in order to not interact. Even then, you'd be interacting with the delivery guy. I don't know what you'd do um, in order to completely separate from sin. You can't do it. You'd have to literally come out of this world. Paul says, though, that when a man claims to be a follower of Christ, but is openly and unapologetically involved in obvious sin, he's not repentant, he's sinning, he knows he's sinning, but he's not repentant. He has no interest in repentance. When a man is in that situation, it is your obligation as a believer in Christ to disassociate fellowship with him spiritually and physically. Why? Because if he is indeed a disciple of Christ, and it may be that he's not, he's claiming to be, but he's not. But if he is indeed a disciple of Christ, then he is walking in deep and open rebellion and he has no right to fellowship with you. Furthermore, it is dangerous for you to fellowship with him because he might just rub off on you. We've said it many times before, when the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. If you throw a clean rag into a bunch of dirt, into a pile of dirty rags, you're not going to come downstairs the next morning and find a pile of clean rags. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. All moms wish it worked that way. Throw the one clean sock into the pile of laundry and next thing you know, it's all white and sparkly. It just doesn't work that way. You throw a clean sock into a pile of dirty laundry and in the morning, that sock begins to smell like a dirty sock because it has become dirty by association with everything that it's touching and being around. So we need to be careful as believers that we don't admit rebellious believers into our fellowship. And when we find a rebellious believer, notice what it says here, not just fornicator, but covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. When you see someone living in open and unrepentant sin who calls himself a believer, that is someone that you need to separate from. And notice it doesn't just say, don't admit him into the church. It says, do not eat with him. Don't fellowship with him. Now, if we were to go back a few verses in 1 Corinthians 5, where we see this man that's fornicating with his mother-in-law, Paul says, you know what you need to do to him? You need to cast him out of the church. So we see that there is a basis for ecclesiastical separation, church separation, as well as personal. Don't eat with one of these people. Personal and church separation 
you withdraw yourself from those who are living in unrepentant sin. And notice he says at the end of this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12, what have I to do to judge them that are without? Them that are outside of Christ? What, what authority do I have to judge them? They're judged by God. They'll stand before God one day and they'll answer to God. But the believer, and notice he says here, do, do not ye judge them that are within. The church actually has authority. And we're going to talk about this next week. The church has been given authority by God to judge believers for their sin. That's an interesting concept in today's age, isn't it? A world where Christians say, don't judge me, judge not lest you be judged. Well, the Bible says the church has all authority to judge a believer by his works. And we'll talk about that more next week. So, Unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit of God. They don't have a true capacity to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Unbelievers' consciences have not been awoken by the Holy Spirit to the truths of God's Word. To withdraw from them for their sin is like not drinking water because it's wet. Uh, You just can't do it. It's the very nature of who they are that they are sinners. It's the definition of an unbeliever to be a sinner, to to be dead in their trespasses and sins. If uh, If we withdraw from the unbeliever, if we judge the unbeliever from sin, we'd have to be withdrawn from all of society. And as God's commissioned salt and light in this world, we cannot withdraw from this world. If we withdraw from this world, then we're no longer the light of this world. We're no longer the salt in this world. We're no longer accomplishing our purpose on this earth. And so he continues that we do have the responsibility to judge believers. In verse 6, coming back to verse 6, this is the same concept that we see in 2 Thessalonians 3. So if we were to go back to this list here, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, and we have fornicator, coveter, idolater, railer, drunkard, extortioner. Paul gives six examples of the kind of believers that you are to separate yourself from. You can add a seventh to this list right here and now from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and the seventh thing that you can add to this list of definitive separation from a believer for is walking disorderly and not after the tradition that, you receive, that, that has been received by Paul. And we're going to see what this means in just a moment. What does Paul mean when he says, walketh disorderly? He describes this action as one which is entirely, and you notice the word disorderly there in the Greek, literally means irregularly. Paul says, the way that these men are living is irregular for a Christian. It's not normal. It's not right. It's not biblically consistent. It is absolutely incompatible with the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal he's talking about here. I mean, we're talking about biblical separation. This is on the same level of biblical separation as fornication and covetousness and idolatry and anger and all of those sins that we just considered. And in verse 7, Paul reminds them that the example that they received from Paul was an example that was intended to teach them the attitude that they should have. Notice what he says in verse 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. We did not behave in the manner that these men are behaving. And what we are asking you to do and what we taught you is to follow us in our example. 
and not to engage in the disorderly lifestyle that these people are living, but rather to live orderly according to the expectations of God's word. So what is this? What is this disorderly lifestyle that they were living? Well, Paul says, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, meaning in vain or freely or without cause, but wrought, worked with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable, expensive unto, uh, a burden to, a weight upon any of you. Paul is saying he didn't accept any handouts from them. He didn't carry into the city a sense of entitlement. He didn't eat their food and stay in their house and expect to be taken care of. Much rather, Paul said, he labored night and day using every moment he had to provide for his own needs on top of ministering to the needs of the church. And his desire was to be a minister unto them, but also to be an example to them of what it meant to be a regular, properly functioning follower of Jesus Christ in society. And he said, the way I'm going to do that is by working hard, making my own way, and eating of the fruit of my own labor. And notice, this is an interesting thing here. See, because, and we saw this in 1 Corinthians as well when we preached through 1 Corinthians. Paul had every right to ask the church to support him, didn't he? Because he was a minister. And the ministers of the gospel, a true minister of the gospel, has every biblical right to fully expect that those unto whom he is ministering would take care of his physical needs. 1 Corinthians teaches this very clearly, that, that the man who is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of being taken care of by those unto whom he's ministering. But Paul says, and, and that's what Paul says here, he says, now I didn't do this. He says, I didn't work and labor for my own food because I didn't have authority or privilege or power to ask you to take care of me because I did. I have every authority, he says, biblically, to ask you to take care of me. He says, but in your particular case, I felt so compelled that I needed to be a, a biblical example of what it means to work for a living. That I, I didn't use the power that I had in order that I could be a good example to you. And this is what we call the doctrine of the weaker brethren or the principle of the weaker brethren. The idea that even if you have a liberty in Christ, you forego that liberty in order to help another Christian grow in, their, in strength in their faith. The concept of the weaker brethren. So Paul says, I had the privilege of not working, but I worked anyway because I wanted to be an example to you. And this is where we see the, the teaching here. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Culturally, I have not found anything to this sort, but it was a very similar situation in 1 Corinthians, as we've mentioned. Both of them are in the area of uh, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, Corinth is in Achaia, but they're both in that kind of that Greek peninsula. And it, it would seem consistent that perhaps in that area, that region of the Roman Empire, there was a work problem. There was a, a problem with people um, not working, with them perhaps living off of the kindness of others or 
maybe even some sort of government system. We don't quite know, but Paul did the exact same thing in Corinth. He, he didn't use his power to have the church support him. He labored. And he did the same thing here because he needed to teach them that if you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. This is the principle that Paul is laying down, that a man has no right to be physically sustained when he shows himself capable but unwilling to work. If a man, if a capable man is unwilling to work, but rather lives off of the generosity of others who have, uh, when he has no legitimate cause to do so, Paul says he is walking disorderly. He is a disorderly Christian. He is walking in a manner that is inconsistent with the example of Jesus Christ and the expectation of a follower of Christ. And he should be separated from in the same manner that a Christian would separate from a fornicator, from an extortioner, or from an idolater. And I trust that this equal standard highlights to us just how seriously God considers this sin. And the problem is it presented itself in the Thessalonian churches found in verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, that means they're not working, working not at all, but are busybodies, they're meddlers. Instead of spending their time on something productive, on earning money for themselves and for their family, on providing for their needs, they are just busy sticking their nose in everyone else's life. They're meddlers, they're gossips, they're, they're, they have too much time on their hands. Isn't that what we kind of say with gossips and meddlers, right? If someone's busy sticking their nose in your business, you're like, don't you have something better to do, right? Don't, don't you have something better to do than to stick your nose in my affairs? How about you let me live my life and you go actually find a life, right? Go, go, go get a life and do something and be productive and figure it out a little bit here. And, and that's the idea that Paul is saying here. Literally, these people don't work. And because they're not working, they're just, I mean, you've got to do something with your time. So I don't have any affairs. So let me go stick my nose in someone else's affairs. I'm going to meddle with others. I'm going to gossip at others. I'm going to, I'm going to be a busybody. And we might um, think of, uh, when, as a good example of this, a fantastic example of this might have been um, the upper crust royalty of England back in the um, 18th and 19th centuries, Right? They never had to work. Everything was investments and they just stand around all day meddling in other people's affairs. And that is kind of the idea here as well that we saw in Thessalonica. Perhaps they were very wealthy people. Perhaps they had government programs. We don't know which it was, uh, but whatever was going on here, there were a good number of people that were not working for a living. And because of that, they found themselves busily work, uh, meddling in other people's affairs. And Paul says this is, it's not just it's a problem, Paul says this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. It is unbiblical. It is not like Christ. And the people that are doing this without repentance, you should separate yourself from them. So Paul says in verse 12, Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is my message, Paul says, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are not working, to those who are meddling in other people's affairs. This is my command, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Shut your mouths. Go be productive. In silence, that literally stillness, silence, that's what that Greek word quietness means. You just go get to work. 
and then eat of the fruit of your labor. You may recall a few months ago, um, we were going through this, a similar idea in 1 Thessalonians. I don't know if anyone in here actually was there that evening, but in 1 Thessalonians, we saw this same idea. Paul mentioned it then, and apparently it didn't stick. Because in 2 Thessalonians, he had to reiterate his message. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul said this as a command of the church. Study to be quiet. Do your own business. Work with your own hands. He said, we told you this when we were with you. Now I'm telling it to you in 1 Thessalonians. And he had to reiterate it in 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians, he said, look, we lived it among you. We commanded you while we were there. I wrote it to you in 1 Thessalonians. It's separation time. If they will not listen, separate from them because they are clearly not listening to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been told and they've ignored it and they said, this isn't for me. Do your own business. Work with your own hands. Study to be quiet. With quietness, do your work. Eat your own bread. If a man doesn't work, he should not eat. And if they won't listen, it's time to separate. Now, this teaching is pretty straightforward. But let's take some time just before we apply to consider other related principles from the Word of God. As one might expect, much of what the Bible has to say in regard to work is found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a fantastically practical book in Scripture. And I'm not going to go to all of the passages this evening. We'll just reference a few of them. Consider what Proverbs 18.9 says. He that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. The, man, the lazy man is a wasteful man. That word slothful there literally means to slacken or be still, to be lazy. Um, that term slothful is kind of an interesting one. According to the National Geographic, the sloth is the slowest animal in the world. So slow is the sloth, in fact, that algae grows upon its fur because it's just never moving much. In English, we use this animal because he's so slow as a description of a person who doesn't do much movement, who is not inclined to work, who is lazy, who uh, could just as easily have algae growing on him because he's just, it's the guy that's just sitting in his house all day on his couch eating potato chips and watching whatever's on in the middle of the day, I don't know. Um, but, but that's the kind of idea here. The man that just won't work. And Proverbs 18 says that the man who is slothful is also, uh, is very akin, is a brother to a wasteful man. A man or a society of slothfulness will be a man or a society of waste. We'll come back to this in just a moment. Proverbs 12, 27. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. The concept in this verse is that the man who does not work for what he has has no appreciation for what he has. But the man who must earn what he has will appreciate what he has and will take care of what he has. Young people, one day you're going to have to earn what you have. Right now, mom and dad are taking care of you and, and, and in various situations, young people still have to earn. Praise the Lord for, for the, the necessity of young people still having to earn some things that they have. But um, as a young person, sometimes we will inherently take for granted what we have because we didn't really have to do much for it. 
uh, dads and mom are the ones that are earning the money and, and they're the ones that are going out and buying these things. And, um, and, and you may not fully comprehend the value of a dollar, but as you get a little bit older and you start to use your own money and some of these things actually become a sacrifice, it, 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 it means you have to sacrifice if you want something or, uh, you have to sacrifice because you need something and all of a sudden it's, it's, you, you become, you find a newfound compulsion to take care of that because it costs you a lot of money. It, and, and that money translates into a lot of your time and a lot of work because that's how money is made. Uh, money is time and, and, and the time is in labor. And that is a large portion of life for many adults. And the Bible says that the lazy man, he'll go out and he'll go hunting, but then he'll just leave it. He, he just wanted to have the fun. He has no understanding of the value of that food. It's incredible how much food, how many goods are thrown away in the United States on any given day, much less month or year. We live in a throwaway generation. My neighbor has, since we moved into our house nearly th- three years ago, our, our neighbor has on many occasions come over with bags of clothes. Some of these clothes, baby clothes, are practically new. Some of them still have their tags on them. They'll come over with toys and they'll say, our children won't take used clothing. They won't use used things. Can you use them? Absolutely. Thank the Lord. He's provided for us. We don't have to pay for them. But literally, their children will not accept anything that is not from a store. So much so that all of these wonderful used clothes have to be given to a neighbor because the children won't use them. It's a throwaway generation. A generation that has no understanding of the value of things because we are so materialistically wealthy in this country. And, and what did the last verse say here? Proverbs 18, that, that the slothful man is a brother to the great waster, which means what? When you see great wasters, what you know is that there are lazy people around. It's not just one way. It's not a one-way street. It's not just if you see lazy people, you know there are great wasters nearby. It's if you see great wasters, you know that there's lazy people somewhere as well. So the throwaway generation that we live in is indicative of a generation of lazy people, of people that have no understanding of the value of money, of the value of effort, of the value of work. And boy, we could just talk about this and we will in our application a little bit. But just before we do so, Proverbs chapter 6 as well, verses 6 through 11. This is the exhortation from Solomon. He says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Quite a phrase. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want as an armed man. He says, look at the ant. The ant is a creature of initiative. It's not told to do. And yet from sunup to sundown, the ant is busy 
doing, collecting food for the winter, making a home. Every time, have you ever kicked over an anthill and then come up the next day and it, there it is again, built right back up? Can you imagine how much effort it takes for those little things to build one of those that you so nicely kick over? I mean, we don't like ants. I, mean, I, I wouldn't mind if all the ants around my house died. But, but they work hard, don't they? Those things work hard. And if you kick over their anthill, you don't get a lawsuit in the mail the next day. They just rebuild the thing. It kicked over, rebuild it, get back to work. Initiative. Solomon says, that's what, that's what pleases God. That is what is right before God. Work ethic and initiative. Three points as we close this evening. Point number one. Well, the three points. The text here is speaking of able men unwilling to work. Second point, the natural consequences of physical handouts is laziness and entitlement. Third point, uh, need for help and generosity of the saints is not what we're questioning here. We'll talk about these. So, um, point number one. The text speaks of able men unwilling to work. Look at verse 10 again. It says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. The Greek word behind that is the word to will or to wish or to determine. It's an act of volition here. It's not saying the man that cannot work. If you can't work, you shouldn't eat. That's a problem, right? It's saying if you can work but refuse to work, then you have no business eating. That's the principle of the Word of God. We're speaking about the man who is able but unwilling, a man who has the mental and physical capacity to apply himself to, apply himself to labor for the betterment of self and for family and for society, but rather he chooses not to. And the biblical mandate concerning these lazy people is that their unwillingness to work makes them unworthy to eat. To the end that a believer should, and this is important, this is the important part of this first point, a believer should not feel bad, should feel no fit of conscience in any context from withholding support from other believers who have not shown themselves willing to work, who are able, but have shown themselves unwilling to do their best to earn a living. Point number two, the natural consequences of physical handouts is laziness and entitlement. We spoke of this in a topical message on the 4th of July. Government welfare has its place in society. It's necessitated by the general lack of biblical churches, the secularization of society. And we talked about that. I have, I have no problem necessarily with, with recognizing that there's a place for that. But since its inception, the concept of welfare has gone well beyond its intended purpose in our society as a whole, hasn't it? It's no longer just a lifeline for the needy, though it is for those in need. But it's extended itself to be the very means of existence for a culture that's lazy and entitled. We now live in a society where men and women can live off of the generosity of the state, compelled by taxing those in society who are truly productive. We call it the welfare state. And so terrible is this welfare state that uh, it is not uncommon to read. You can read articles online. You can Google it and find dozens of articles about people that are living in huge houses, making seventy, eighty thousand dollars, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year off of government programs alone. It's obscene how much money is being made 
off of government programs to the extent where people are not working, not because they cannot work, but because they don't have to work. The welfare state. The majority of young Americans now feel as though society owes them something, owes them free education, owes them high-paying jobs. People get out of college and they don't want to start on the bottom and work their way up. They want the high-paying job from day one. People don't even want to pay for college. And there's a big push right now to have government pay for free public colleges like you pay for K-12 through education, as if somehow that's going to help society. They see luxury as necessity, uh, the throwaway generation. We live in a society where people will strike and picket because burger joints won't pay them $15 an hour to flip a burger. Do you realize that your pastor, if he only worked 40 hours a week, would be making $15 an hour with my master's degree and eight years of post, of, of post high school education? And that's if I only worked 40 hours a week, which typically doesn't happen. And these people want that to have no degree whatsoever and to flip burgers at a McDonald's. This is an entitlement culture. There's no concept of effort and training and skill, only entitlement. And these policies have already proven to be a disaster everywhere they've been implemented. We saw in Proverbs 18.9 that the slothful man is a wasteful man. A wasteful man is of the same makeup as the lazy man. The welfare state... People making tens of thousands of dollars a year through state-sponsored programs, functioning by and large without any measure of accountability. And while this is obviously an economic disaster, the economics aren't even the biggest issue, are they? The big issue here is that the people have no character. They are lazy. They are entitled. They are so dependent upon others that they become of no use to themselves, no use to their families, no use to society, certainly of no use to God. And much to the contrary of a philosophy in society that encourages entitlement and laziness, the Word of God commands us to be different. Do you see how this is an area in our lives where we can be so different? This is an area of our lives where we can shine forth into the darkness where we can boldly proclaim that we are going to have a work ethic, that we are going to labor, that, that we are going to hold to the principles of right character and this philosophy that, that if, if a man does not work, neither should he eat. This is a part, a grand part of our testimony to this society today. So the text is speaking of men unwilling to work. The natural consequences of physical handouts is laziness and entitlement. Third and finally, need for help and generosity of the saints is not what is in question here. This final point is essential. What are the implications for the church in regard to people in need? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 tells us this. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Paul states that a man who is driven by a spirit of self-entitlement steals what others have to supply himself. 
And what he's doing is he's contrasting the mindset of the world with what your mindset ought to be as a believer. And he says, you who are now a believer, if you were a thief before, you should no longer steal. Whereas before you were satisfying your own needs by taking from others, let him that stole steal no more. But rather what? He says, work with his hands the thing which is good. Well, we've already seen Paul make this contrast. That laziness is bad. Therefore, working with your hands is that thing which is good. Doing something virtuous, doing something productive, working with your hands, earning a living. And what reason does he give here for a man to earn a living? He doesn't say that thou mightest have a boat for the weekends. He doesn't say that thou mightest get lavish food. He doesn't say that thou mightest get the iPhone as a status symbol. What he says here is that you might have to give to the needy. The idea of giving to a needy believer is not what is in question here. The the concept of meeting the needs of others, we, we cannot extend the idea that if a man does not work, he should not eat to the idea of the man that is out of a job or of the man that is medically struggling or of the man who has come upon hard times. This is not what the Bible is speaking of. In fact, much to the contrary, the Bible says that the believer will be the first one to stand in line to give to those in true need. The lazy man is not a man in need. He might need things, but he's not a man in need. He, he can go out and get a job and, and meet his needs. But those that are truly in need... The Bible says that this is one of the primary reasons why God gives you money. To give to those that are in need. So we're not saying that we are all on our own here. That you live on a little island and you have to provide for yourself and no one can help you. It's right. It's appropriate. It's necessary. It's biblical for the church to bear one another's burdens and help each other out in times of need. We're not saying that a man without a job is not worthy of help if if it's not a laziness and and a slothful issue, this is when he needs help the most. And we're certainly not saying that a person who is incapable of working is not worthy of being supported by others. None of these fall within the context of Paul's warning. Our first point made it clear that Paul is speaking of able men unwilling to support himself or his family. On the contrary, believers are expected to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6. And generosity is one of the chiefest of Christian virtues. In James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, James said this, we considered it not long ago. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? James spends all of James, um, the, the book really, and, and specifically James 2, we even talked about it just a little bit this morning, uh, rebuking the church, uh, the churches scattered throughout the world that were made up of Jews in particular, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He was rebuking them for seeing rich men as somehow greater in the eyes of God than poor men. And for allowing an assessment of faith to be based upon physical blessings instead of upon a man, the fruit of a man's character. And as he rebuked them for this, this was one of the examples he gives. How can you say that you truly are a, um, 
follower of Jesus Christ obeying the Word of God when you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is. When you see a believer that has no food and has no clothing and you look at them and you say, oh, wow, I'll pray for you. And then you get in your car and you drive home to your house and you open your closet that's full of clothes and then you eat your meal and you go to bed full and, and maybe even you do pray for that person, but you didn't help them. Paul says, what profit is it if you say, be warmed and filled, but you don't warm them or fill them when you have the capacity to do so? And James rebukes them and says, this is, this is showing where you have a limit to your faith, where, where your faith has hit a wall that you need to get over and start exercising faith in the commands of Jesus Christ. You are no good to a brother or sister in Christ if you, having the capacity to meet their need, don't do it. So the necessity of helping fellow believers going through difficult times and of generously giving of the abundance which you have received for the needs of others is not what is in question here at all in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as we close tonight, it's my prayer that we would determine our own mindset on these issues. Young people, you're growing up in a world that will insist that the lazy are entitled to wealth, the wealth of those who have initiative. You are growing up in a world that will insist that if you work hard, you need to give to those that refuse to. The world has taken the biblical virtue of voluntarily giving of the surplus that you have to the needs of others and turned it on its head to where now the hard workers and men and women of initiative are compelled by the state to give to those who are lazy and those who truly don't deserve it. And my deep exhortation to you is that you would have a different mindset, is that you would live differently from the world that is around you. It's not wrong to need help. It's not wrong to receive of the generosity of others. It's not even inherently wrong for the government to supply a need that churches won't or can't. But we must, through it all, deeply maintain our loyalty to the biblical principle, to the biblical philosophy, to the command of Jesus Christ that we work for what we have to support ourselves, our family, and our loved ones. We must guard ourselves against the pervasive philosophy of entitlement and laziness that has overtaken our culture And we must also deeply devote ourselves to helping the situation by giving to those that have legitimate needs as God has blessed us to do so. Let's close in prayer.